You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.9, The End of the Beginning, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and this week I'm the ghost of Gundam Christmas present, here to show you that right now, even as you listen, there are people out there gathering with friends and family, and they're praising the Gundams that you think are bad. Ooh, some of them are saying that your favorite Gundam show lacks thematic coherence. And I'm Nina, new to F91 no longer. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 707 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all and special thanks to our newest supporters, James S., Bailey S., Joshua J., and Jose S. You keep us genki. Although this is the end of our coverage of Mobile Suit Gundam Formula 91, it's not quite the end of Season 7. We have one more SD short to cover before moving on to 0083 Stardust Memory. Paparu no Akatsuki, Bolken Shoujo Artesia, Dai Hyakusan wa Suginamu no Hanayome. Or Dawn of Papal, Adventure Girl Artesia, Episode 103, Suginamu's Bride. Like the last SD short, we have been unable to find subtitles. And like the last short, we are going to attempt our own translation. The tricky part is trying to balance our desire to do a complete and high-quality translation with our desire to keep the podcast moving forward and not get bogged down or go too long without releasing an episode. We aren't precisely sure how long it will take, but we hope our experience on the last one will make this second one faster. We're also going to be working on our pre-season prep for season 8 at the same time. So we'll be off for a little while, then we'll come back with season 7, episode 10, and then we'll roll immediately into season 8 with no break. Stay tuned for updates and announcements about that as we move into the new year. This is also the last episode we are recording in 2022. It was a hard year for us in many ways, and probably for many of you as well. But looking back on it, all I can say is thank you. It's an honor, really, to know that you spend some of your valuable time with us every week. And we are so grateful for your support, whether it's kind messages, writing reviews, sharing us with your friends, or supporting us on Patreon and Ko-fi. Wishing you all peace and happiness and a good start to the new year. Before we sign off for the year, it's time to wrap up F91. One last chance to look back and see how our impressions of the movie have evolved after spending so much time with it. But before we get into all of that, I've made it through most of the key voice cast by now, but there are still a few standout cameos that I want to mention. First, looking at the credits for voice actor Ikeda Masaru, you might think that Tomino just has him on speed dial He played Federation General Revel in the original TV series, Titan's political patron Jamatov Hyman in Zeta Gundam, 
Tuareg nationalist leader Gadeb Yassin in double Zeta, Neo-Zeon moneyman and Char Aznable handler Horst Harness in Char's counterattack, and now he appears briefly in F-91 as the Federation official who likens the civil war in the frontier side to two drunks in a brawl. English databases usually list the name for this role as Governor Staust, but the Japanese title is Chokan, more like a government secretary or the director of a department. He also played the big bad demon emperor Zeon in SD Gundam Gaiden, and he'll be coming back again for a role in 0083. Suzuki Mie played spunky space arc pilot Manuela Panopta. She cut her teeth on roles in shows like Devil Man and Fist of the North Star, but just a year after the release of F91, she landed a major recurring role on Crayon Shinchan, a wildly popular weekly children's anime that debuted on April 13, 1992, and is still running today. That same year, Suzuki became a disciple of the Kodan-style storyteller and national treasure Ichiryusai Sadamizu, the sixth-generation inheritor of that name. Suzuki eventually changed her stage name to Ichiryusai Teiyu as she progressed as a storyteller. Then in 1993, she picked up a major role on the edutainment show Nintama Rantaro, also still running today. And prior to F91, back in 1990, she had played the role of the main character's mother on the children's anime Chibi Maruko-chan. The series ended in 92, but it was revived in 95, with Ichiryusai returning, and is also still running today. That means that since her cameo on F91, Ichiryusai has gone on to have major recurring roles on three of the ten longest-running anime shows in history which seems like pretty good work if you can get it. Crossbone Vanguard officer and Iron Mask lackey Jile Kruger was played by Kobayashi Kiyoshi, who sadly passed away just a few months ago. He was a prolific voice actor who we'll be hearing again soon in 0083, but he was best known as the voice of Daisuke Jigen in Lupin III. Finally, Lieutenant Bardo, the Federation officer who proposes using the kids as human shields at the start, and then reappears as their liaison with the regular army, with no fanfare or reaction whatsoever, because this movie is just kind of like that, had a pretty small role in the movie. But his voice actor, Wakamoto Norio, is a pretty big deal. Before becoming a voice actor, Wakamoto was briefly an officer in the Tokyo Metropolitan Police, and when riots broke out during left-wing anti-Vietnam War protests in Shinjuku in 1968, Wakamoto was one of the police deployed to suppress the rioters. A high-ranking martial artist in both Kendo and Shorinji Kenpo, and a Shinto priest, Wakamoto also played Oscar von Royenthal in Legend of the Galactic Heroes, Emperor Britannia in Code Geass, Zemnas in the Kingdom Hearts games, Vicious in Cowboy Bebop, and Cell in Dragon Ball Z, just to name a few of his many roles. I think this is going to be a short episode, though every time I say that, we end up running long. <laughs> but this time, for real, I'm manifesting it. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so this is our final wrap-up episode to, uh, to talk about any straggling remaining thoughts to work through how, at the end of all of this, we actually feel about this movie. And also, as usual, to ask Nina to speculate a little bit about where she thinks things are going to go from here. After all, this is only the beginning. 
I also have a few stray tidbits I've picked up about things from the novel, things that were proposed for the film and then cut, the kind of stuff that didn't come up naturally in our previous episodes, but I do still want to mention. Though for these, I will be relying on other people's summaries of what's in the novel, so I can't be 100% certain that it's actually there. And I guess I want to start by asking you, Nina, after spending all of this time with the movie, how do you feel about it? This sounds like such a cop-out, but ambivalent? (laughs) (laughs) There are things about it that I think are well done, but nothing comes to mind when I think back on F91 that I would tell a Gundam fan who hasn't seen it, they absolutely have to see. And that's not just because it's been spoiled to me a little bit. It doesn't directly link to other Gundams, so it's not necessary background context for anything you're going to watch later. But also just for its qualities, there's nothing in it that I think is so exceptional. I'm like, oh my goodness, you cannot miss this. You Mm -hmm. have to watch Mm -hmm. it. To give a contrast... You know, First Gundam had its share of production difficulties. First Gundam has its share of technical problems. But First Gundam is foundational. It's essential for the stuff that comes after it. And it's just really good on its own. There's a great story in there. Great characters, great interactions, great scenes, great moments. I can't remember what I said when we finished First Gundam. But at this point, I would say in an unqualified way that I like it. Mm -hmm. It is a show that I like. And I make this comparison very consciously because F-91 was supposed to be the new first Gundam, both foundational and strong standing on its own. Objectively, it isn't really foundational. And I think subjectively, from an artistic standpoint, it doesn't really succeed as a work on its own. We're talking about a movie whose main characters are just like frequently forgotten when people are talking about the main characters of Gundam. The characters don't particularly stand out other than a few particular sections. The design, the animation, the art don't especially stand out. And even the the things that it does well in the early part of the show, other Gundam shows also do well. <laughs> it's not as if it's the only Gundam production that does, you know, an incredible sequence of fighting inside a colony. One of the most interesting things about F-91 is actually kind of its indirect legacy because Murase Shuko, the animation director who handled that first section, that first colony attack, is going to get a chance to do something like that again. And it's really easy to see how his experience working on F-91 informed his later work. It's very funny to think about what I would change in the movie to make it better, because in some ways, the things I would change make it less able to stand on its own, and yet I think Mm. it would still be a better movie. (laughs) Okay, okay, let's hear them. From my perspective, they really need to tell less story. Mm -hmm. And a potentially really good place to cut off the movie would be when Seabook tries to rescue Cecily and she tells him it's too late, she's already decided to stick with the Ronas. Because you have this big emotional break between the two characters. Their lives have changed in ways that they could never have imagined. They've gone from being childhood friends to being on opposite sides of this conflict. Seabook has to accept that he cannot rescue Cecily, that he cannot save her. While I generally prefer that a movie stand on its own, uh, 
perfect setup for a sequel Mm -hmm. to have him take all of this risk to try to save her and then have it all come to nothing because she doesn't want to be saved. Well, that would be a perfect ending to the first core of the show, for instance. Plus, the movie already ends on a bit of a cliffhanger set up for the sequel tone anyhow, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. doing that in a different place I don't think makes it worse in any way than it already is. (laughs) I think partly we are conditioned to think that way because in the year 2022, we live in the era of the trilogy, right? A lot of movies, especially sci-fi, big budget productions from major franchises, are not being pitched as single movies anymore. We get an entire trilogy all greenlit at once, or they're doing the MCU thing where, you know, they've got half a dozen movies that all, all feed into exactly, a single. <laughs> exactly. We sort of have lost the habit of thinking of these big franchise movies as one-offs. And for better or worse, they never intended this to be a one-off. The other thing that I would change, and this is very subjective to me, but other than the things we've already talked about in terms of paring down the cast, paring down the story, I would find a way to give the audience some sense of Cecily's, like, interiority (laughs) in this movie. Uh Seabook gets to talk to people in a way where we get some idea of what he's thinking and feeling. Cecily almost never does. Like, there's that one, almost half of a scene with her and Zabine. But even then, she has to be careful, right? She can't be honest Mm -hmm. completely with Zabine because it's a precarious situation and she doesn't know exactly where he stands. She has no confidant, nobody who she can talk to in an honest and open way that then tells us her thoughts and feelings. And Gundam doesn't really do voiceover, so we don't have just her narrating scenes telling us what she's thinking or feeling as she's going through certain events. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that aspect, but I could imagine this movie all presented through Cecily's voiceover. That would be an interesting way of doing it. I know some people hate voiceover. I really don't mind it. I think it can be done really well. And although we discussed earlier, there's a sense that Cecily and Seabook kind of just being carried along, allowing themselves to be carried along by what's happening without taking direct action is maybe one of the themes of the movie, one of the thought processes that the writers were having about young people. I don't know that it comes across all that clearly. No. And providing that look into Cecily's mind (laughs) would give us a better sense of, is she floating along? Does she feel alone? Why is she going along with the Ronas? Not that she has to be a sympathetic character. I don't think we need that for the story to be good, but it would let them highlight those themes a little bit and also help the narrative make a little more sense in places where there are sort of odd jumps (laughs) and we lose track of what's happening and why. Mm -hmm. Part of what makes this movie so much fun to try to fix uh, is it's so broad that there are always things you can grab from it and emphasize those elements in order to fix whatever problems you're perceiving since it's a mile wide and an inch deep. You were talking about potential confidants for Cecily. They could easily, easily have developed the Cecily-Theo relationship in a way that allowed her to talk to him as her surrogate parent about the things that are happening to her. And as somebody who has now switched sides multiple times, Mm -hmm. who left because he was in love with her mother, but then came back for question mark. 
And that question mark could be filled in by these conversations between Cecily and Theo. I mean, they could talk about what it means to make compromises with family and power. Or if any one of her old friends had joined Cosmo Babylonia at the same time she did. Part of it is also Seabook has basically all of his friends with him and Cecily is alone, mm -hmm. which is part of the point, but also means she doesn't have anybody to talk to. <laughs> we get the impression that Dwight might be sweet on her. Dwight talks about potentially defecting to Cosmo Babylonia. What if Dwight had just done that? Had just refused to let her go by herself. Or he had gone with the kids and then realizing that Cecily wasn't with them, gone back. Or, you know, we have that one scene where Cecily's like maid slash bodyguards try to capture Seabook for her. They seem to know something about the relationship between the two of them. Maybe Cecily has a relationship with those guards. Right. Even just one of them, even just one person who she can be more honest with. There's all this talk about factionalism within the Crossbone Vanguard, but we don't really see it. There's like one faction and it's the Iron Mask faction. Make a Cecily faction. What about you? What would you change? So my approach, um, I guess I have a lot more small changes. I wouldn't be so radical as to cut the movie off at the halfway point, though I do think that that's a good idea now that you've put it out there <laughs> into the ether. Um, I've said this before, but we really ought to cut down on the number of characters. There were a bunch of characters who I think could be combined without really losing anything. Uh, Doral, Rona, and Zabine Sharu, combine the two of them. They basically are never doing separate things at the same time, so it would be the easiest thing in the world to just make them one character. The friend roles of Sam, Azuma, and Arthur combine all of those into one character. And then we can have that character die at a dramatically convenient moment to motivate Seabook, it's fine. It doesn't need to be right at the beginning of the movie. The two different mechanics on the space arc, Groose and Nanto, we don't need both of them. We don't need two overbearing Federation military officers, Lieutenant Bardo, Colonel Cosmo, combine them. We don't need two different women associated with the resistance who hate the Rona family, make Elm and Cecily's mother Nadia the same character. The other obvious one is the like swarm of little kids, but because they're little kids, we don't expect much from them in the plot, so just leave them as is, that's fine. I don't mind them. Uh, I also agree less stuff should happen. One of the things I kept fixating on in this is that when Seabook infiltrates Frontier 4 and then escapes with his dad, Anna Marie gets an order to follow them. There's a whole scene of this, and it doesn't go anywhere. We don't actually see her track them down. Her locating the space arc by following them is not a plot point. And then she doesn't do anything for another like half hour in the movie. And then the next thing she does is defect. Just have her defect now. Have her follow Seabook back to the space arc and then defect. Or he thinks they've been caught. He's on the run. And then she says, wait, no, I'm not going to shoot you down. Exactly. I'm coming with you. Exactly. And it's shortly after that that the rumors arrive at the space arc about the bugs. Have Anna Marie bring the rumors. Uh, I would also cut the whole Cecily defecting storyline. You and I are on the same page on this one. Cecily should stay with Crossbone Vanguard at least to the end of the movie. I think we could still do the ending of the movie with them like finding each other in space. But have Cecily get there by being the co-pilot of the Rafflesia. And then, as the co-pilot, 
She learns about the bugs. She learns what her father is actually doing. And that's when she like challenges him. And that's when he throws her bodily into space. That could work, except that basically through the entire movie, it seems like she despises her father. Like she has a good relationship with her grandfather, but she does not with her father. I would reconfigure some of those scenes mm-hmm. so that it's still like a tense relationship, but she is trying to like her father. Mm-hmm. Maybe her agreeing to pilot the Rafflesia with him is even part of that. Her grandfather, who she loves, is like, I really want you to mend this rift with your father. I want you to do this together. She agrees. And then she's already primed to, to betray him and defect once she finds out that he is exactly as horrible as she has always thought he might be. I would still have Seabook infiltrate Frontier 4. I would just have him do it under orders and as part of a mission to make contact with the resistance, tie this into that sniper attack at the parade, actually do something with that, which is a hugely interesting element of the plot that they never go anywhere with, and then just cut the whole scene where they're like, this is the result of your ego. Because it doesn't go anywhere. It has no point. Seabook has not actually been like a particularly egotistical character. And there's no, like, impact of him being chastened afterwards. Yeah, without any demonstration of him leaving while other people try to stop him, or people noticing that he's gone and freaking out, or the fact of his absence and getting anybody else into a difficult situation, it feels really overblown to jump to him being berated (laughs) by half a dozen people. Right. And his behavior doesn't change afterwards. So the whole scene is kind of pointless. Going back to what you said about the resistance, it did occur to me as you were saying that how funny it is that we actually don't see the resistance do much of anything. They're just kind of around and attached to the military, which is not really how that would work. (laughs) Uh, And then the assassination attempt, which may or may not even be them. Yeah. Uh, I I maintain that that's a, a stunt by Iron Mask. In my ideal version of F-91, it would be done by the Resistance, but the Resistance at this point has been infiltrated by Agents Provocateur. Right, but we're, we are not shown and no characters talk about any kind of local sabotage or bombings or attacks on Cosmo Babylonia officials. We get no indication whatsoever that the Resistance is doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. To really encapsulate how little this movie gives us, when that sniper attack happens... All we see is the bullet bounce off of Iron Mask's face, and then they show us the top of the roof that it was presumably shot from, and there's a cloud of smoke there. Did that smoke come from the gun? Did they fire a very big gun at him? Did somebody explode them after they fired the gun? What is going on with the smoke? Who knows? Big question mark. Never mentioned again. Not important. Ignore it. Move on. I uh, I was going to say a positive thing, but if you have more changes, you should talk about the more changes. You okay, I, I do have more changes. Okay. I would cut Monica's role in the movie almost entirely. I would not have her show up physically in person at all. Have her still be there in video form in the manual and actually come back to that. Like, show us some scenes of Reese, I don't know, falling asleep, listening to her mom in the video manual. Oh, <laughs> See? See? I gotcha. Yes, I made did. emotions happen. You did make emotions happen. I don't think Monica's presence at the end of the movie really adds anything. In the same line as the sniper scene, really cool scenes that aren't given enough context to really work. When Zabine shoots Gilet in the faceplate when they're in space together, fantastic scene. Why did he do that? 
<laughs> the development of the Cecily Zabine faction within the Crossbone Vanguard would, I think, do a lot to um, add necessary additional context to those kinds of interactions. And then this one is super petty. Promise it's the last suggestion. The bugs don't look good. I mean, they're fine in a vacuum, but they do not look good within the context of this movie. They do not fit the aesthetics of Cosmo Babylonia. They don't really fit the aesthetics of Gundam. So do something different for the bugs. I like them conceptually. I like them on paper, but I just don't think they look good. So these are a lot of complaints. Obviously, we did not completely dislike the movie. <laughs> we didn't think it was all junk. No. There no. was one element of the movie, well, I think a running theme of this whole season for us has been that F91 presents some very interesting ideas, some very interesting hooks. It just never quite goes anywhere with them. And one of those for me is all of the religious symbolism and all of the kind of hinting at a religious element or a religious inspiration for certain aspects of the film. At the very beginning, well, very beginning, in that opening 20 minutes or so, there's a moment when Cecily and Seabook are standing next to each other. Cecily's holding the baby she's rescued, and they are standing in a shaft of light. And it's extremely Holy Family vibes, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. The light shining from Doral's mobile suit down on Cecily is like a visitation from an angel. It's very, be not afraid, like you have been chosen. <laughs> Which is more or less what he says to her as well. And a lot of the Cosmo Babylonia mobile suits have these, like, I think they're radiator plates, but they look like the wings of an angel. The fact that the ship all these young people are on is the space arc. Just absolutely no subtlety about that one. And a repeated discussion on the part of Seabook in particular of new types as the beginning of some new civilization, a new era, a new society... In one of his lines to Monica, I believe he says something about starting with us. It almost feels like he and Cecily are being presented as a kind of Adam and Eve for a new humanity. The fact that their last big fight takes place in the ruins of an old colony, this imagery of building a new society, a new humanity, on the wreckage of the old humanity and the old society. And finally, in one of the very last shots of the movie, the two of them are floating in space, and because of the uh, depth of the shot, the F-91 is there, and it looks like an angel with its wings spread over them. I don't think any previous Gundam has taken this religious angle on new types. I think it's explicitly religious. I don't know if other people feel the same way. But that has so much potential to be really interesting over the course of a show. Yeah, in the novels and in the original pitch, I think I've mentioned this before, but there was going to be a religious movement attached to the Crossbone Vanguard, attached to Cosmo Babylonia, and it was going to be called, I've seen it rendered by various people in different ways, but something like Cosmo Cross, Cosmo Cruise, or Cosmo Christianity. Like, the religious themes are very much an explicit part of the F-91 story. And if these two young people are reluctant military leaders or social or governmental leaders, how much more reluctant would they be <laughs> to be religious figures, you know, figures of cult adoration 
or would they accept it because they think they can use it as a tool to end war? I, you know, mm-hmm. I would watch that show. Oh, some support for your Housery Rona is meant to be houseman theory. It was Housery Rona who proposed the law that they build new colonies in a classic style. Nodding sagely over here. <laughs> Smug little grin on your face. You deserve it. You got this one good. To get out of the fuzzy realm of what's in the book that may or may not have been intended for the movie, let's talk about something that was definitely intended for the movie and was cut on the suggestion of some staff members, which is that, you know that crest on the top of Iron Mask's helmet? Yes. Well, in Tomino's original storyboards for the movie, that was supposed to be a rocket-powered new type controlled boomerang, which he could shoot at people and which, after getting shot by a sniper in that one scene, he does shoot. And perhaps that is actually the supposed cause of the explosion and smoke from where the sniper fired from. He shot his new type boomerang at them. That was originally what was supposed to happen. There are Mm. even, like, sketches of this. He leans forward with his arms in this cool pose, and then he shoots the boomerang off. That would be a very different kind of movie. Yes. And also, this is basically the same attack that one of the characters from uh, Ultraman show mm. is able to do. And uh, the, some of the staff members went to Tomino after they saw these storyboards and were like, um, Mr. Director, sir, you know this is an Ultraman move, right? Laughing nervously, pulling their collars. <laughs> uh, 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 sir, um, excuse me. Ultimately, they convinced him that it was very silly. Uh, and I think they, they described it as manga-esque, mm. manga-like. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, well, I don't want that, and agreed to cut it. I kind of think the movie is poorer for it. I'm not saying that it would make the movie better. Just that it would be more fun. <laughs> I mean, they could make a totally different movie and have it be fun. <laughs> Suggestion number one for improving this movie. Just make a different movie. I guess I have one like final thought about what went wrong with this movie after all the research we've done after all the people we've talked to and i think the biggest problem is that you have a whole bunch of people really like stunting on this movie you have tomino writing this incredibly elaborate complex storyline with all of these different characters that maybe would have been great if it had actually been pulled off but it wasn't there's just too much there and it didn't work you have yasuhiko drawing these incredibly elaborate complex really good looking character designs that then can't be animated, or at least can't be animated in the amount of time that they had. You have Okawara doing these really cool mobile suit designs. I love the mobile suits on both sides in this movie, but they're so complex. There's so many lines, it's hard to make them move. And so all these guys at the top are really showing off their skills, but in ways that don't work together and that don't work for the movie. They needed more collaboration and more teamwork. They needed to actually have meetings with each other. That seems like maybe it's asking too much of this particular team in this place and time. As always, we will finish up by talking about what happens next. Uh, I already know that the next thing we're covering is Stardust Memory. I know that that had already begun work when this movie came out, and so the literal next series, next thing that we're covering is a return to the old timeline and a continuation of those stories set in the Universal Century. If F91 had received a sequel, either in the form of a movie or a series, 
what might have made the most sense in terms of continuing the story would be to start talking about the interactions between the different factions. Other Gundam shows have tried this and have not always pulled it off, but the Federation government has kind of been a non-entity in the first movie, but by the second movie, presumably they're aware of just what a threat Cosmo Babylonia is. And so maybe they start to get more involved, or maybe there's a faction within the Federation on Earth that wants to get more involved. We know there are factions within Cosmo Babylonia. Maybe those start to fracture after the use of the bugs and also the loss of Iron Mask. What does Zabine get up to now that he has a better idea of what's going on? What does Meitzer do now that he's lost Iron Mask and Cecily? I'd really like to see other would-be space nations rising up in the wake of Cosmo Babylonia, seeing the weakness of the Federation, seeing opportunity for themselves to carve out their own little strongholds. So it's not just Cosmo Babylonia versus the Federation, it's like all of space fracturing into a thousand little polities. Then things become almost Kino's Journey-esque, like everywhere you go you're encountering some very different culture, some very different group, some very different government, all doing their own thing, all disconnected from each other. Except connected by the ambitions of the expansionist aggressive ones, right? You can have all these little communities trying to make a go of it. Your Moon Moons, for instance. Actually, speaking of which, do you think Moon Moon is still around? It's only been like 30 years. Maybe. All those double Zeta kids (laughs) are just old enough to be having midlife crises. Iron Mask is like the same age as Lena. Gosh, really? Hang on, I actually worked this out a second ago. Let me look at my (laughs) notes. Yeah, Iron Mask was born just two years before the One Year War. Basically the same age as Lena. Um, Seabook's mom is the same age as Lena. Wow. Seabook's dad is Puru's age. Okay. Like, not that much time has passed. Those people should still be around. Nah, they... Job John was involved in developing the F-91. That's canon. What? (laughs) That's amazing. No, I'm going to assume that all the rest of them went as far as they could from the core planets. They're all near Jupiter or something. (laughs) They want nothing to do with any of this. So the F-91 sequel that actually did get made... Wait, there was a sequel made? Manga. Um, Crossbone Gundam is a a continuation of F-91 in manga format. And Crossbone does finally go out to Jupiter. Maybe Nina will finally read some Gundam manga. Maybe you will be the obsessive reading the extra content. So anyway, I speculated about a sequel. I know it doesn't get a sequel, at least not in the sense that I meant, not in the form of a show or a movie. If you're Bondi and your first attempt to kind of reboot and restart things goes awry, well, there's a question actually. Did this sort of new jumping off point get, I'm going to say, abandoned because it was not very well received when it came out or because of all the production difficulties around it? My understanding is that it was not well received when it came out, Okay. certainly not in theaters, Mm -hmm. but apparently it sold really well when it came out on home video, Huh. like well enough to be considered a success. Okay. Surprisingly well. But one imagines at the Bandai offices a group of people basically autopsying this situation and saying, okay, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. What do we change for the next one? 
I know it will be a while before they have some some Gundam that Tomino is not directly involved in, uh, but they might be starting to consider that. I mean, at this point, the Gundam projects that Tomino has not been involved in, this 0080, SD Gundam, and the new 0083, have all been pretty successful, both artistically and commercially. So if I'm a Bandai or Sunrise executive at this point, I'm going to be looking at Tomino and stroking my chin a bit. I would probably look at reactions to F91 and think that any further attempts to kind of kick off a new Gundam timeline or, or Gundam segment should be aimed at a slightly younger audience. SD Gundam is, and it's wildly popular. Even though the protagonists are teenagers in F91, it feels like a more adult show in some ways. I don't know why that is. Maybe the complexity or the politics or something about it feels like it's aimed at an older audience. The teenagers are just kind of there. The actual movers and shakers of the plot are all adults. Maybe that's why. But if the idea is to try to bring in new Gundam fans, then continuing to make your stories more and more adult is probably not the way to go. Mm -hmm. With SD Gundam, they've already expanded on alternate universes, effectively. Like, all of SD Gundam takes place outside of the Universal Century. And even within SD Gundam, there are distinct alternate universes. Absolutely. But I do wonder if this is the point at which they start thinking, oh, maybe we should start doing that for non-SD Gundam shows. Mm. Maybe it's time to branch out from the Universal Century. Maybe that constraint of keeping it within the Universal Century is actually hurting more than it's helping. And is increasingly meaningless when you can just jump 30 years into the future and pretend that none of that other stuff happened. Yeah, it's a bit like they wanted the veneer of a continuity, the veneer of a connectedness, but there's very little sense from the characters or events that anyone is thinking about or affected by the one-year war or the events of Char's counterattack. Even though, again, most of these adults lived through those events, they were like formative experiences for them. As I speculated early on, that nod to continuity is probably just a sop to old fans. It's not meant to be anything more. On the way out, uh, just one more thing. I did promise that if we couldn't get Iraj that I would explain After Images with Mass. And unfortunately, due to holiday scheduling chaos, we weren't able to get Iraj for this season. So here's the thing about the After Images with Mass. When the F-91 goes into its, like, super mode, it's moving really, really quickly. And moving that fast requires a lot of power, and all of that causes it to overheat badly. The way it deals with that overheating, uh, one, it has those radiator fins that come out of its shoulders, which look really cool, and I know Nina likes. Two, it opens the mask on its face and expels a bunch of heat through its mouth. That's why it seems to be screaming. It's screaming heat into the void as it goes beyond its limits. Which, by the way, pretty cool thematic thing that the F-91 has to remove its mask in order to vent heat, almost like it's having powerful emotions of the kind that Iron Mask's mask purportedly prevents him from having. Also, the F-91 is covered in, like, layers of thermal armor that it can shed. It sheds, like, microscopic amounts of thermal armor to help it dissipate all of this heat which leave behind after images. And because it's not just heat, it's little bits of this armor plating 
those after images have at least some minuscule amount of mass. There's actual physics for the after images with mass. Well then, I've changed my mind. It's an excellent movie. <laughs> And now, Nina's research on F91's composer. In this, the final part of my investigation into the people mentioned in the F91 trailers and previews, I look into Kadokura Satoshi. But there isn't much to tell, at least not that was readily available online. Born May 25, 1954 in Kamakura City, Kanagawa Prefecture, Kadokura is a composer, arranger, producer, and keyboardist sometimes under the professional name Kadokura Yuki. A graduate of Tokyo University of the Arts, he's produced for many famous artists and groups, including Wink, Noriyuki Makihara, and Southern All-Stars. He's composed and arranged music for television dramas, anime, films, and video games. His anime credits include Windaria, several different Mashin Hiro Wataru and Mashin Eiyuden Wataru series, Brigadoon, Once Upon a Time, and Night Raid 1931, and in video games, he's worked on multiple titles in the Metal Max series. Nowadays, he's fairly active on Twitter, and it seems he's really into sci-fi, especially novels and short stories. It's not obvious to me why he was considered a draw. The first Metal Max game, released in May of 1991, came out too late to have been a factor, so it was probably Mashinhiro Wataru, Another Sunrise property, the first Mashinhiro Wataru, came out in April of 1988, and, like Gundam, was a multimedia franchise, spawning radio shows, OVAs, video games, novels, and other merchandise. It's not as well remembered now, but I do remember during our research on SD Gundam that the people making it considered Mashinhiro Wataru to be their main competitor, and thought it was like a big success for the era. Don't know what role the music played in that. The English-language Wikipedia page for the series claims it was very popular for its time, but doesn't provide any sources, and the Japanese Wikipedia page doesn't discuss the popular reception to the series at all. Still, if it was that popular, that would explain the inclusion of his name in the promotional spots for F91. One final note on the music. Uh, supposedly, the direction Karakura was given from Tomino was that the music should be like that in Lawrence of Arabia or Star Wars. And I think I can hear it. Though it isn't music that draws much attention to itself, the music in F91 does have that similar dramatic, martial kind of feeling. There are a couple of times in F91 where it feels like the music really takes over the movie. And when it does, it has a strong like emotional impact on me that a lot of the rest of the movie doesn't manage to muster. We watched Lawrence of Arabia recently for this very reason, and one of the things about that movie is that there are many scenes that feel entirely driven by the music. The visuals are happening, characters are doing stuff, but the music is the core feature of the narrative in those scenes. It's sort of the energy driving and enlivening everything else. And when F91 does that, those are its best moments. and. I, gosh, I wish they would have done that more.
And now, Nina's research on flower symbolism. There are a couple of different flowers that figure prominently in F91, and not simply as beautiful objects or background. Their symbolism is relevant to the story and adds additional dimension to the characters and relationships the flowers are connected to. First up, lilies, or in Japanese, yuri. Historically, lily plants in Japan have been used in food and in medicine. The bulbs have been a major export, for a time second only to silk. In fact, what are often called Easter lilies in the United States originally came from Japan. Yuri is a relatively common given name, and the lily plant has long been associated with feminine beauty and purity, particularly in literature. There's a saying in Japanese, and I wish I could translate it more eloquently, but it's something like, a beautiful woman's form is like a Chinese peony when she's standing, a rose or a tree peony when she's sitting, and a lily when she's walking. Spend enough time in anime and manga circles and you are likely to come across the term yuri as synonymous with girl's love, which is to say, stories depicting romantic or sexual relationships between girls or women or sometimes, even more generally, stories with lesbian characters. Even though there's no indication of that meaning in F91, I thought I ought to look into that a bit further. The precise etymology of this term seems to be unknown, though several sources point to a first appearance. Quote, In 1976, Ito Bungaku, editor of the gay men's magazine Barazoku, literally Rose Tribe, used the term Yurizoku, or Lily Tribe, in reference to female readers of the magazine in a column of letters titled Yurizoku no Heya, Lily Tribe's Room. While not all women whose letters appeared in Yurizoku no Heya were lesbians, and it is unclear whether the column was the first appearance of the term Yuri in this context, an association of Yuri with lesbianism subsequently developed. The term Yuri came to be associated with more pornographic content in the 1990s, girl-on-girl content aimed largely at a straight male audience, particularly in the second half of that decade. However, it's not clear from the sources whether yuri as a term with lesbian associations would have been widely known outside of the LGBT community, particularly in 1991. Speculation on my part, but it seems unlikely that the bulk of the writing and design teams would have been aware of that meaning, and it's certainly not how they're using the lily here in this film. In terms of their symbolism in Japan, lilies, and especially white lilies, symbolize purity, chastity, virginity, innocence, something or someone unspoiled, naive, pure-hearted, an ingenue. They are also associated with purity in the sense of something true and genuine. One source used the word jinsui, which we've discussed before because it's the same word Lala used to describe Shar when she said he was too pure. The Casablanca lily, which is a particular kind of white lily noted for its very large flowers, is known as the queen of lilies and symbolizes dignity, majesty, solemnity, gravity, and nobility, not just of character, but also explicitly of class. Lilies are also associated with the magnificent, the grand, the sublime. And finally, they can be symbols of self-esteem, self-importance, conceit, and pride. To my mind, lilies in F91 represent Cecily's public face, 
the role she plays as part of Cosmo Babylonia, the young virgin queen, noble and dignified, yet at the same time innocent, untouched by the griminess of politics or governance. Zabine, fully aware of Cecily's position, gives her a bouquet in keeping with her role and their relationship. As a gift, a bouquet of lilies is seen as extremely formal, and he readily acknowledges her position. It is, in fact, her main attraction for him. But at the same time, one of the lilies from the bouquet on her mobile suit is the beacon that leads Seabook to her when she's drifting unconscious through space. Even as he opposes Cosmo Babylonia, it's possible that Seabook's understanding of Cecily's character and spirit is similar to that implied by the lily. Beautiful, pure, genuine, dignified, and proud. When they came up with the idea for how to end this movie, to have the lily flower drifting through space, to have Seabook see that and have it lead him to Cecily, in response to concerns from some people on the staff that maybe this was a little too much, maybe they wanted to take it in a different direction, Tomino is reported to have said, it's the end of the movie, it's fine, let's be totally shameless. There's a sense that this final scene is like totally implausible, but deeply loaded with like indulgent artistic meaning. I sometimes think Tomino would have been much more comfortable creating like avant-gardist, strange animated features, heavy on symbolism and light on explicit meaning. <laughs> <laughs> the second prominent flower appears when Cecily is talking to Meitzer after the overnight bombing of their ad hoc palace. The sun rises, so to speak, and as they walk through green fields, they are surrounded by pink flowers with fringed petals. I am fairly confident these are a type of dianthus called pinks or gillyflower. The genus dianthus includes 340 different species, including carnations and sweet william. There are several species of dianthus native to Japan, but the general word for all of them is nadeshiko. As with yuri, nadeshiko have a long history in Japan. They're mentioned in the manyoshu, the pillow book, and the tale of Genji. They're used in herbal medicines, including, if I understood correctly, as an abortifacient, although that's not relevant here. Nadashiko is one of the seven autumnal flowers, or aki no nanakusa, and is associated with autumn in visual arts, literature, music, and poetry. The nadeshi of nadashiko is from the verb naderu, which means to stroke, to caress, or to pat. And the ko is the same as that for child or girl. Per jisho.org, the word nadashiko used to be used to describe a lovable, caressable girl. I'm imagining that feeling you get when you see a really cute kid and you just want to snuggle them. Another name for the nadashiko is tokonatsu, or everlasting summer, because there are so many different cultivars that bloom at so many different times that regardless of the season, there's almost always some nadashiko in bloom. In poetry, the flower is often used as a pivot word and for puns. Nadashiko can refer to the flower or to a child, while tokonatsu can refer to the flower or, because toko can also mean a sleeping place, to lovers. For example, in the tale of Genji, tokonatsu, or gilly flower, refers to Genji's erstwhile lover, Yugao, and nadashiko, or pink, to her beautiful daughter by Genji, Tamakazura. 
The line of poetry from that chapter, as translated by Royal Tyler, is, quote, If he were to see all the inviting beauty of the little pink, he might wish to know as well more of the gillyflower. Nadeshiko symbolized shyness, bashfulness, timidity, and reserve, but also yearning, longing, deep affection, or eternal love. They are associated with merit, with virtue, and with friendliness, affability, and welcome. Because of the scene in which they appear, I think the Nadeshiko symbolize Meitzer's hopes for his relationship with Cecily. He wants her to be his sweet, lovely little girl. In a way, he wants a do-over, an opportunity to have a loving and nurturing relationship that he didn't have with his daughter. He admits, in this very conversation after all, that he was probably too hard on Nadia. The wrinkle being, I think, that he wants Cecily to be the child he remembers. Shy, cute, and unformed. Someone he can mold into the perfect exemplar of cosmo-Babylonian highborn virtues. Later conflict comes from the fact that she isn't that little girl anymore to be pampered and petted and sheltered and shaped. But the fact remains that these flowers in this scene where Cecily and Meitzer have gotten to really talk one-on-one and in a frank and open way, I think symbolize Meitzer's feelings of fondness toward his granddaughter in that moment. It is perhaps meaningful that the one flashback we are shown in the movie is to a very small Cecily running through a field of flowers and into the waiting arms of her grandfather. That seems to be Cecily's like one memory of the time in her life before her mom took her away from the family. And mercenary as he is, I do believe he's really fond of Cecily. Or at least this version of her that is obedient and helping him. Next time on episode 7.10, Artesia Rides Again, we translate, research, and discuss a new-to-us SD Gundam short. But remember, the release won't be next week, but will be announced in 2023. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there, and tell some stranger that everything that happens after F91 is unimportant. We don't need to research that. Do you mind if I flip on this lamp over here? No, no, can you reach it? I don't know if that actually did anything, but it's on now. I feel like the um, the overhead lamp gives sometimes wildly varying amounts of light. Yeah, it um. And it's been on for a while. I would have expected it to kind of warm up and get mm-hmm. brighter, but it doesn't it seem does. to have. Ah! Help. <laughs> <laughs>
too much. I mean, it does, but too much. Right. <laughs> uh, actually, try that again. I think I'll get used. I think I'll get used this to it. This one is less bright. Yeah, I think that's the solution I needed. All right. All right. And also to address two. And also to address two. Um, I don't have an. Um, I don't have anything to follow that. Um, uh, I could go into my fixes unless you have more things you want to say about yours. I feel like you're gonna have to cut this, but. Gundam protagonists, they're just like us. <laughs> Definitely cutting that, yeah. Yeah. Or moving it to the end where it's devoid of context and no one knows what we're talking about. Yeah, put it in the outtakes. <laughs> because of the weird way we recorded this season, all my notes are out of order. They could not outrun the expansionist empire. You mean gun? Yeah. Um. I think that's a good place to end it. I didn't have any additional stuff to add, so. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs>